All right. So we're good here. Anything need clearing up? Too late now. You already had the test, right? The quiz. All right. So chapter eight for the coming week. Ask, can we be objective in our worldview? And so um, the authors cover what is meant by objectivity and by subjectivity. And these are the two key terms used in the chapter. And when you get to the end, there's only three questions to answer. So, yeah, and there's not as many pages. I think there's only 10 pages, 10 or 11 pages. So. Uh, should be pretty, pretty light week. All right. Well, <clears throat> we've already seen how our perceptions, physical and mental, can deceive us and lead us to incorrect beliefs about people, events, and the real world. And so, this some of this is going to be familiar because we discussed this before, previous chapters, but. Objectivity is the assumption that we apprehend the world as it really is without any interference from our own biases, experiences, assumptions, etc. Okay, so you got a blank there to fill in, right? Subjectivity, then, is the assumption that we never apprehend the world without lenses that result from our biases, experiences, assumptions, etc., such that we never apprehend the world as it really is. So the way they lay the way they lay this out is it's it's either it's either one or the other. And to to define things like this, um, you probably don't find people who strictly adhere to one one line of thinking or the other, unless you get in the university and people just want to promote a particular view. But subjectivity is one that uh, is predominant throughout the postmodern thinking. And you probably remember Pastor Marshall teaching on postmodernism. We've had some exposure to it already in the book. So... uh, this chapter just it primarily centers around the general application of these terms, and it only gives a, a brief mention of their application to moral values. So, one thing that um, one word that comes up in addition to these two terms is the is the term absolute, and it I think it occurs once or twice in the chapter, and so. In terms of moral values, some would say, well, I'm a Christian. I believe the Bible believe in absolute moral values. And if you've been on the Bob Jones uh, University campus, uh, I didn't go to college there, but I've been on the campus and I've toured the campus a couple of times. There are a lot of, at least there were last time I was there, probably 25, 30 years ago, <clears throat> there are a lot of sayings of Dr. Bob up on the walls. Um, they have them like on little plaques and things. And one of them was uh, from uh, Bob Jones Sr. He said, it's never right to do wrong in order to do right. 
Have you ever heard that before? It's never right to do wrong to do right. That would be that would be a a description of what an absolute value would be. But what about Rahab and Jericho? Um, last fall, several Sunday school classes I think studied Joshua, and um, I was in this class with uh, Tony Ellis and Steve and Matt that taught this class, team taught this class on Joshua. And this came up when we were discussing Rahab's uh, telling a lie to protect the uh, the Israelite spies that came to spy out the, the fortification there. So she told a lie. Did Was that wrong in that case? Yeah, we had a we had pretty good discussion over that. Well, so then the different and different uh, Christians hold a different view on that, and I'll give you the view that I've come to understand uh, the inference to the best explanation. Okay, <laughs> and that is there's absolute values, there's objective moral values. And then there's subjective moral values. And I think we all know what subjective moral values are. Uh, there are subjective um, things that we we would hold, like Hudson likes chocolate brownies. He thinks they're the best thing in the world, right? And Cadence thinks broccoli is the best thing in the world. <laughs> Broccoli is pretty good. Yeah, it's pretty. Okay, those are those are personal, right? And there are cultural things too that are uh, that are cultural values. But sometimes our uh, our cultural values can get us into trouble, or other people's cultural values, if we don't understand, that can get us into trouble. Uh, one instance is that I can tell you about personally. Uh, I used to work in the Spanish ministry, and uh, my Cuban friends I grew up with often, and my Puerto Rican friends often used the word estupido. But my Mexican friends, when I, I referred to myself, I said, esto estupido. And the pastor's wife said, oh, never say that. That's, that's a bad word. Well, this is in Mexico, northern Mexico at least. And, I mean, if you use the word estupido, it, it could get you a knuckle sandwich. So if you go to Mexico, don't say estupido or idioma. Or, no, idiodo. Idioma is, idioma is language, okay? Idi, so don't get the words mixed up. Be very careful. Best thing, speak English and ask somebody for the right thing to say if you don't know Spanish real well. Okay, so another thing, gestures. Um, you know, we go, it's okay, man. But in some, in some cultures... This will get you a knuckle sandwich because this is a vulgar symbol in some cultures. Okay, so that's subjective moral value. It's culturally relative. But there are things that are objective values, moral values. They're true for all people at all times, but there might be an exception. And I think Pastor, I think Pastor Marshall mentioned this, uh, 
probably within the last year or two during the message. I don't remember exactly when it was. But in the case of Rahab, she told a lie to save somebody else's life. Her family, for one, and to protect the to protect the uh, the Jewish spies. It's wrong to kill, but I don't have a concealed carry license or a weapon. Um, I just try to duck fast. Uh, <laughs> but if somebody came through that door or the door of the church, and and Steve or Matt or one of the fellows that has a or even one of our police officers. They came through the door and they started, pulled out a gun, they started shooting. Would they be wrong to kill that guy? No, because they're protecting other people. So that's, it's, it's wrong to kill, but, you know, that's not really murder. So ordinarily, you shouldn't pull out a gun and shoot people. <laughs> okay? So, but an absolute moral value, the one I can think of is, is it would always be wrong to use, to curse God and die, as Job's wife advised him to do. To curse God, or to use his name in vain. I can't think of an instance where that would be something, I mean, you could probably come up with a hypothetical, but I don't know of any case where that would be, um, you know, a valid out for somebody. Um, many Christians, many Christians even today, will take death over denying the Lord. There are probably many today, this very day, who have given their life because they refuse to denounce Christ. Okay, so let's move on. The book goes through a a rather lengthy historical background in developing these uh, themes of objectivity and subjectivity, and the um, the Age of Enlightenment. I don't know if I put the the dates on your paper or not. Scholars say 1650s to 1780s, so that would include the four, uh, the three philosophers we're gonna that are mentioned in the chapter. Um, what do you know about the Age of Enlightenment, class? Besides the dates I just gave you. I put, huh? Now the light bulb wasn't invented until 1879. Yeah, okay, so it wasn't that kind of enlightenment. Francis Bacon was alive. Yeah. And Rene Descartes, Immanuel Kant. Yeah. Okay. Well, think of think of what all the things that were happening at that time. Galileo. you know, he didn't exactly invent the telescope, but he uh, improved upon it and used it to show that the Earth was not the center of the solar system, that, that the Earth and all the planets actually orbited the sun instead of all the planets and the sun orbiting the Earth. Got him into some trouble. but uh, So it was the beginning of a scientific age and a philosophical age. And one of the one of the key issues that we're still dealing with today, I think, is that uh, at least in Western Europe, they stressed reason and critical thinking above authoritarian 
institutions, especially the Catholic Church, and also against tyrannical rulers and these social classes. And that part was that part was good, but along with that, they kind of threw out the baby with the bathwater. Many of them denied God was a personal being. They pretty much all believed that God existed, but they embraced this idea of deism. Have you heard of deism before? What do we mean by deism, Cadence? I'll put you on the spot. Doesn't it just mean that there's just like one God? Yeah. But like not the Trinity? No, okay. I yeah, yeah. Well, <clears throat> yeah. Um, Unitarianism would be would be a clear uh, statement of one God, and so Deus would be Unitarian. Okay, but Deism means that God created the universe. Those who hold to Deism, God created the universe, and He just let it go. That he doesn't transcend his creation. He doesn't, that miracles don't happen. Thomas Jefferson um, loved the Bible for its um, moral teaching, its uh, humanitarian uh, values. But he cut out, Thomas Jefferson Bible, he cut out all the miracles. Because he didn't believe in miracles. He just thought that was fairy tales. So he was a deist. And so were uh, many of the others that were key thinkers of that time. All right, so Rene Descartes, some of his key uh, things that he's known for. Of course, you've heard this, I think, therefore I am. And also mind-body dualism. This is something that most atheists today reject. Um, They are strict materialists, the idea that there's a material and an immaterial essence to human beings is, I won't say it's, it's unique to theism because Plato and some of the ancient Greek, Roman, Greek and Roman philosophers also believe that. But at least it's consistent with theism. And then Francis Bacon, we've heard his name before, um, this was covered early on. He advanced the inductive method of reasoning. So we all know what that's about. And in the process, uh, he came to that by saying that, well, previous scientific methods moved too quickly from observation to theory, giving insufficient emphasis to research and investigation. So, in other words, he argued that uh, scientific theories must be grounded in observations and experimentation that slowly develop through careful research. And so you might wonder, if Bacon was alive today, how we view the present status of neo-Darwinianism, especially in light of the discovery of DNA and biological complexity and uh, the arguments given by those who advance intelligent design I think he would probably be more inclined to uh, as Anthony Flew we're going to hear a little report later from Cadence on how he came to be a theist alright 
and Immanuel Kant. <clears throat> this fella is really deep. <laughs> he argued that experience is subjective without first being processed by pure reason. And um, he also divided, this will be in your chapter, divided reality into the noumenal world and the phenomenal world. Noumenal world is that which can be directly sensed through uh, experience in the phenomenal world. We kind of, did we cover this before? What, what we, uh, what we sense through our, our mind. Phenomenalism. Yep, phenomenalism. And we move on down here. His major work was a critique of pure reason, and I've got a copy of it. I haven't read it yet, but I've been reading critiques of critique of pure reason so that I can maybe get a handle on how this works. It's brilliant. It actually is. Uh, from what, all, all that I've read. Kant said, act only... Well, let's go with one more here. And then he came up with this. This will be in your, in your uh, chapter reading. The system of categorical imperatives. One of the things that the Enlightenment thinkers did was they set aside the supernatural... But they didn't want to set aside moral values. And that presents a problem. Without God, how could you know what is right and wrong? If God doesn't exist, or if God has no, if he has no connection with uh, human beings. And so, This is what this is what Kant uh, devised as his basis of categorical imperatives. There are there are rules that every uh, society should agree to. He said, "Act only according to the maximum whereby you can, at the same time, will that which that it should become a universal law." In Kant's mind, then the list of commands that uh, we would want. Uh, we'd want them to be universally applied to all people, uh, and they could provide an objective basis for morality. Uh, that's on page, you'll read that on page 100 of your text when you get there. So without God, who would determine what this list of commands should be? So that, that could be a problem. So he tried to, he tried to provide some uh, justification for objective moral values. He devised this system. It's sort of a, the quote there is kind of a sort, kind of a set of, uh, an idea of the golden rule. And his vision was that these would be universally accepted and applied. And of course he, he found out and others pointed out that it doesn't work that way. There was a famous debate between, uh, atheist um, Bertrand Russell and Jesuit philosopher um, Frederick Copleston, and you can find this on the internet. But at one point they were they were they were debating over the existence of God. Russell, of course, being an atheist, 
and Coppleston being a Christian theist, uh, the topic of morality came up. And so Coppleston asked uh, Russell, he says, well, how do you do, how do you distinguish right from wrong or good from evil? And Russell said, the same way um, I distinguish between other things like color, blue and red or whatever. And by, by my, you know, by feeling, of course, what else? And so Coppleston says, all right, tell me this. In some cultures, they teach their people to love their neighbors. In other cultures, they teach them to eat their neighbors. Well, what, what would be your preference? <laughs> There's no moral compass in atheism. It's whatever a culture produces or decides. All right. So now I want to move on beyond the chapter and uh, give you some apologetics. Okay, because the chapter will be pretty straightforward. Some of it will be, oh yeah, we've read this before. All right. The problem of evil and the existence of God. If you talk to an atheist, I haven't taken a poll, but I, I would bet that if they don't believe in God, someone doesn't believe in God, then this, rather than uh, this problem here, the emotional part of this especially, is at the root of their atheism as opposed to some scientific or uh, other reason why they don't believe in God. So, does the presence of evil disprove the existence of God? We're going to attempt to answer that here. This man, how many of you have heard of Dr. Bart Ehrman? He teaches New Testament at University of North Carolina, I think at Wilmington. And Dr. Ehrman is a brilliant man. He knows his New Testament. He, he can read it in Greek. But he claims that evil does disprove the existence of God. And uh, I hope I hope and pray this man will come to the come to the uh, realization that there are answers for that. I think people have tried to present him with that, but he's uh, he's a tough tough holdup. Okay, in ancient times there was this uh, fellow named Plato. You probably heard of him. And the Euthyphro dilemma comes from Plato's. Uh, uh, it was a dialogue that uh, he had written, and it's been impl- uh, uh, applied to modern thinking on this. And so this uh, this is a, this is a can be seen as a serious problem for theism. So is a. How many of you know what a dilemma is? First of all. Die to, okay, a dilemma. They often say something is hung on the horns of a dilemma. A dilemma is a situation where you have a choice between two alternatives, neither one of which are desirable. 
Okay, so first horn of the dilemma says, is something good because God wills it? Or the other horn of the dilemma is, does God will something because it is good? Now, why is that? A, why is that a problem? Well, if A is correct, then God can be charged with being capricious and arbitrary. Uh, he could will anything, even hate, because he's God. And by that standard, hate would be good. If B is correct, then that which is good stands alone, independently, outside of God. And so that's a problem because then God would be dependent upon some other, some external standard for what he must declare as good. So that's a theological problem in, in either case. What did you say was the, um, for the first point, some, uh, is something good because God wills it? Okay, if something is good because God wills it, then God is, it's just arbitrary. He, 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 can, make, he can make anything he wants to be uh, good. Hate, murder, all right? Okay. okay, so we know what a dilemma is. <clears throat> and did I put this quote on your paper? Gottfried Leibniz formulated it this way. And for the sake of time, I won't read it. Is it on, is it on your paper? No. Oh, okay. Um, well, there it is. <laughs> it's, it's just an elaboration on these two propositions here. So, how do we how do we resolve this dilemma? Well, a true dilemma would be either A or non-A. You really only have two choices. But the euthyphro is not either A or non-A. See, if it's A, then anything else, if it's not A, then anything else is fits into the second category, right? But it's not that way, really. It's not a dilemma. Some would call it a false dilemma. Um, so the euthyphro is actually either A or B. Okay? So it's not a dilemma. So the solution is neither A nor B, but it could be, uh, do you like that? C, something else. Okay? So, Here's what uh, most Christian philosophers have argued, and really a, a secular philosopher who brings that, who brings up the euthyphro dilemma, is just not with it. They're not up to speed on this because this has been settled dec- decades ago. Something is good because it is part of the essential nature of God. It is. Good is just what God is. He doesn't have to choose something outside of himself. Or he doesn't will something just 
willy-nilly, um, but he wills out of his own good, perfect character. Okay, it's the essential nature of God to be good. Perfect goodness is essential to God. He wouldn't be God without perfect goodness. How many of you heard of the ontological argument? Kevin has. Probably from trail life, maybe? I I thought a couple of years ago. Um, Without going through all, there's a number of premises to get to the conclusion, about six or seven premises to get to the conclusion. And a lot of people go, well, I did it a couple of weeks ago. Were you there? Maybe not. And one of the the brothers, Caleb, I think, he goes, that makes my head hurt. <laughs> and, it, it, and it does, but it is a, it is a good argument. It, it, ha- it surrounds the idea that God is the greatest conceivable being. He's all-powerful, all-knowing, and all-good in every possible world. So, now we're going to move on to a more uh, get this, yeah. probably a more well-known argument against the existence of God. And so these are two formal arguments. And this is the this is the basis for them. If God is perfectly good and if He's all powerful, then how can there be evil? And sometimes people will ask this question in different ways. And if you have this written out, you can kind of help them. And then you can show how that their thinking is faulty. So <clears throat> I got two versions of it here. Premise one: If God is all powerful and all good, then evil cannot exist. Premise two, evil does exist. Conclusion, therefore, God doesn't exist. What kind of a, what kind of a syllogism is this? Remember, we talked about three different ones. Rachel knows. <laughs> it's an if- if then, yeah, hypothetical or conditional, right? Okay, so if God is all powerful and all good, then evil cannot exist. Evil does, evil does exist. So what's the second premise doing? It is denying the consequent. That's good, right? It's kind of a double negative when you do that, but it's a valid argument. Now what do we do? I don't know. We're stuck. We're stuck, Senor. Kevin? I mean, just because the argument is, uh, you, you follow the process doesn't mean that your premises are true. Yeah. So what's wrong with any of the premises? Does evil exist? Mm-hmm. Okay. So we'd have to say that the first premise, something wrong with the first premise. What's wrong with the first premise? Evil can exist even though God is not Say it again. Evil can exist even though God is all powerful. 
All right. Let's look at the second version of it, which is a little milder. If God is all powerful and all good, then evil should not exist. Second premise is the same. Evil does exist. Now, the conclusion is, therefore, either God is not all powerful and cannot eliminate evil because he's not all powerful, not powerful enough to do it, or God is not all good and intolerates evil. You may encounter one form of this or the other. Well, what we have to do then is to show how premise one in both cases is not necessarily true. It doesn't necessarily follow. Non sequitur. How many of you know that little Latin term? It means does not follow. In this case, we improve, I put in the word necessarily. <clears throat> it may follow in a valid fashion, but it's not necessarily true that God doesn't exist. Why? Because God could have morally sufficient reasons to allow evil to exist. So, we could come up with uh, a number of them right from the Bible. Could we not? Um, God knows how bad moral choices uh, may at some later time result in a greater moral good. Look what we're reading, what we're studying now, Pastor Marshall's teaching in Sunday on the life of Joseph. What better, what better example could we, uh, could we come up with for the, you know, for the present discussion? God allowed that evil to play. In fact, Joseph recognized it. Okay. And then he's created humans with a free will and the ability to make moral choices. And he's done that rather than he could have created a bunch of robots. But God uh, is a has free will himself. And when he created us in his image, he created us with a free will. Not, not every theological position holds that. But uh, determinism, interestingly, is a problem both for the atheist and the theological position that holds to uh, determinism. All right. So now we're going to uh, I'm going to give you a moral argument for the existence of God. When an atheist brings up uh, the problem of evil, we can actually say, okay, if evil exists, then you have to you have to believe then that good exists, right? So okay, evil both both uh, natural evil, hurricanes, tsunamis, those kinds of things, uh, tragedies that happen all the time, and then moral evil. So, either case, uh, God knows the consequences and, and he is, uh, in, in a sense, responsible for that. And so, we would then ask them, okay, you believe that, that evil exists. On the basis of atheism, then, 
how can you how can you say if evil exists then you have to say good exists but on the basis of of atheism how can you define good on what basis do you find good and i got a couple of videos and if you want to stay and and watch them we can but we're going to finish up the class with cadence maybe you can read it next week yep. okay give you time you got plenty of time. You're way early on this thing. You're going to get an A anyway. <laughs> I know she read a whole book, this one here. And uh, I'm anxious to hear give the paper. I'm going to let you keep it for another week, though, okay? All right, so premise one, if moral values and duties exist, then God exists. Well, moral values and duties do exist. Even most atheists will acknowledge that because they don't want to um, they don't want to acknowledge that what Hitler did was just eh, just a cultural thing that if the Nazis had won World War II and we all became Nazis then killing the Jews and you know those kind of people then that would be okay because it was culturally acceptable Okay, most atheists don't want to acknowledge that. So, we present this, okay? If moral values and duties exist, then God exists. Moral values and duties do exist. Therefore, God exists. It's an airtight argument. The only thing that the atheist would have to argue is that moral values and duties do not exist, or give an alternate explanation for how they do exist without God. And uh, um, William Woods and I went to a debate um, a couple of years ago at Southern Evangelical Seminary between uh, Dr. Richard Howe and Dr. Michael Roos. Richard Howe is a, is a uh, Christian philosopher at SES, Michael Roos is a uh, atheist philosopher, but Dr. Roos believes in objective moral values. And uh, let's see, a, a real good debate that's on YouTube is between Dr. William Lane Craig and Eric Wielenberg. Both Michael Roos and Wielenberg believe that moral values exist as abstract objects. Where do they get that? Well, that's what Plato believed. Plato also believed that numbers are abstract objects. Do you know what I mean by abstract objects? If the, if, if the world didn't exist, numbers would exist. They're immaterial, um, they're immaterial things, but they exist. Almost like, you might say, like angels or something. They're immaterial but you can't reach them. You can't, you know, uh, the Plato had these five, there were five Platonic solids, which he said would compose all of the physical shapes in the world. Uh, and I don't mind. They're, they have equal sides. I think there were five or seven. I don't know. But <clears throat> he believed that they existed. And somebody said, well, what if one landed in the road? Would you would it crash your car? Well, no, because they're invisible, they're immaterial, 
They're just they're more than just an idea in somebody's mind. They believe the abstract objects these folks believe really exist. It's kind of far out, but Roos and Wielenberg believe that moral values exist out there. So, note that the argument not is just including moral values, but it also includes duties. Um, Dr. William Lane Craig and Dr. Alvin Planiga have done a lot of work in this area. And it's not their specialty, uh, either one of them, but they're such brilliant men that um, they uh, they have realized that we do have moral duties. But abstract objects have no causal relationship to anything in the material world. So they can't give us a duty. Even if abstract, uh, even if uh, moral Platonism was true, there's no way that it could exert a duty on us. That only comes through uh, divine commands, which come from God, who is the paradigm of everything that is good. So it's a it's a pretty solid argument philosophically. They may not get people to understand the philosophy, but anyway. You want to watch a video or two? Or you want to go? This one's about three minutes. Or I can skip to, actually, I'm going to skip. This is Frank Turek. He's really good. But um, I'm going to skip this one and go to the last one. Muslims at this moment who are blowing themselves up, convinced that they are agents of God's will. That was Sam Harris. Um, he's an atheist and brilliant guy. But uh, Dr. Craig has debated him before. But this one here is the actual debate between uh, the late Lewis Wolpert, who was a fine gentleman, but he passed away a couple of years ago. And this is just a clip between it. Uh, somebody else put these. Uh, little titles in between. My argument is not that belief in God is necessary in order to do good or live a moral life or be a decent chap. The argument has nothing to do about belief in God. The argument is that without God, there isn't any absolute standard of right and wrong, and therefore what we call moral values are just the spin-offs of sociobiological evolution. Altruism, like you mentioned self-sacrificial behavior, a mother rushing into a burning no, building. No, 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 specifically not a mother to save a child because there's a perfectly good reason for a mother to save well, a child. Well, but if you think, if you say that, see, then again, you're, you're still... This is William Lane Craig speaking. What I was going to say is that on the sociobiological point of view, that kind of altruistic behavior is just a selfish gene wanting to perpetuate itself, and it's the same kind of behavior you see in a troop of baboons where you see what looks like altruistic behavior, or even in an ant heap where fighter ants will sacrifice themselves for the good of the heap. My point is that on the atheistic view, that's all moral values are. Is that right? Let's clear yeah, that. I, I would like to. Is ask. there any difference? Let me you come back in one second, but let me just ask Lewis whether there is any difference between the altruistic behavior of a human being, somebody who may sacrifice him or herself for a cause which will bring them no particular benefit, 
and other other baboons. Well, there are there are occasions where there are groups of animals where there's someone who will will scream when danger comes. Mm. Therefore, the thing. So these can be biologically determined, but also there's the whole context of the nature of the sociology of the society and how different societies behave. That's Dr. Wilpert. That's complex sociology and biology. And and who imposed the complex biology? Where did that come from? Evolution. Evolution. Right. Yeah, we're back to the old. Well, no, see, that, that's my argument. That is all that moral values are on, on atheism. And that therefore, as I say, rape, child abuse, these yeah, are socially that. inconvenient. But, or, or You're misunderstanding my argument. Of course you're not. You're, you're misunderstanding the argument. I'm not arguing that to be, be a good person, you have to believe in God. What I'm arguing is that without God, there is no absolute moral values, no absolute moral duties. We are like advanced primates, uh, and what we call moral values are just these ingrained sociobiological patterns. Yes, that's exactly what they are. Okay, so, so that is your view. I was, I was not sure of that. Well, then you see, when you make these moral judgments yourself, you're, you're acting inconsistently with your own worldview. When you make moral judgments like what? everyone has the right to believe whatever he wants so long as it doesn't interfere with others. Where do these, where's this notion of rights suddenly come from? The, the, that's just history and sociology. Right, just sociologically in yes. behavior. So the, uh, the pedophile or the rapist or the psychopath or the person who wants to be uh, a, a religiously intolerant persecutor is just acting uh, out of fashion. He's like the person who doesn't no, just a meal. No, no. Uh, Hitler wasn't acting out of fashion. He acted in his particular way which other people objected to. Right, but there wasn't anything morally wrong with what he did, right, on your view? Of course there was. It, well, it was just, uh, it was just contrary to uh, the patterns of sociobiological behavior that have been ingrained in the human species not to kill each other off. <laughs> he just Why agreed wrong? to that a minute ago. <laughs> Objectively wrong. Because it, made, it killed many people and made people extremely uh-huh. unhappy. All right, but now that goes on all the time in the animal kingdom, right? No. Killing other, other no, animals. No, it doesn't. <laughs> well, when a lion kills a zebra... Oh, when a lion kills a zebra, kills it it what about when you kill your, 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 your turkeys? You kill yes. the turkeys with the lions. Yes. Well, fine, use, use that example. On, on atheism, these are all morally neutral acts because there isn't any standard of right and wrong. No, there isn't. <laughs> so, yeah. you agree with it. We're not done yet. Somebody put these little things in there. <laughs> A little sarcasm here. I would have taken that out if I had the time. I don't, I don't like to put sarcasm against someone in there. Just let him speak uh, for himself. What we call moral values are just these ingrained sociobiological patterns. Yes, that's exactly what they are. Okay, so, so that is your view. I was, I was not sure of that. Well, then you see, when you make these moral judgments yourself, you're, you're acting inconsistently with your own worldview. When you make moral judgments like wow. everyone has the right to believe whatever he wants so long as it doesn't interfere with others. Where do these, where's this notion of rights suddenly come from. The, the, that's just history and sociology. Right, just sociologically in yes. behavior. So the uh, the pedophile or the rapist or the psychopath or the person who wants to be uh, a, a religiously intolerant persecutor is just acting uh, out of fashion. He's like the person who doesn't no, 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 no. uh, 
Clearly, he wasn't acting out of fashion. He acted in his particular way, which other people objected to. Right, but there wasn't anything morally wrong with what he did, right, on your view? Of course there was. He's repeating this, but... Well, it was just contrary to the patterns of sociobiological behavior that have been ingrained in the human species not to kill each other off. Why was what he did objectively wrong? Because it killed many people. It made people extremely unhappy. All right, but... On atheism, these are all morally neutral acts because there isn't any standard of right and wrong. Sure, there isn't. Sure, there isn't. He's going to tie it up here. Let's see. Is that it? Okay. I thought this one had one more statement by Dr. Craig, and I'll just give it to you. Uh, If, and I think I said it earlier, if Hitler had, and the Nazis had won World War II and killed off everybody who opposed him, then what would be left would be a Nazi system of morality. But it would still be wrong, even if there was not one person on the planet that thought so. It would still be objectively wrong. Wolpert acknowledges that. Every atheist I've heard acknowledges that. So do objective moral values exist? Yes. Is there a duty that goes along with them? There has to be. Otherwise, come back, you know, come back Hitler and show us. (laughs) Okay? Was that helpful? Did you like that? I I love this guy. I mean, I... I, I listen to his podcasts and, and stuff all the time. I just wish I was smart enough and had a brains enough to remember it all. <laughs> all right. Thank you for uh, sticking around. So, yeah, homework. We need to close in prayer, too. So. All right. Let's close in prayer. Father in heaven, thank you for um, raising up Christian scholars uh, like Dr. Craig and uh, Dr. Frank Turek, Alvin Plantigan, many others, Lord, that um, we can learn from in this time of uh, testing of our biblical faith. And help us, Lord, to stand strong for the truth and to stand for what's right and wrong, to be willing to... Admit when we are, uh, when we've made a mistake and to confess our sins and to walk humbly before you and before our fellow man. These things I ask in Jesus' name. Amen.